Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Expediters podcast, where we look at the logistics and freight forwarding industry through the lens of a global logistics provider. I'm your host, Chris Parker, and today's topic, we are talking about forced labor. We'll talk about legislation that's preventing goods made with forced labor to enter the U.S., what other countries are doing, and what importers must keep in mind to prevent detainment, fines, and ultimately damage to their reputation. So joining me today is our global director of government outreach, Brenda Smith. Brenda, welcome. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. And it is a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I was wondering before we get started with our topic, if you could walk through your career before Expeditors and what you do now as Global Director of Government Outreach. I I am happy to. I (laughs) was 35 years with the um, federal government here in the United States, and um, the last 30 of which I spent at U.S. Customs and Border Protection, where I did a variety of jobs, everything from budget analysts to international affairs to automation and retired from CBP in March of last year. And Mm -hmm. a couple of months later was asked to come and join Expeditors. I knew Expeditors as a company, always very professional, very expert in what they did. And uh, so when I had the offer to come in and join the company, uh, it was a, a great opportunity. And really why I'm here is to focus on helping expediters grow their relationship with the various government agencies that regulate supply chains. Um, mm. That's how I got to know them in the first place, because they they had a really good partnership with Customs and Border Protection. And we're now looking to grow that relationship with other government agencies, with other parts of customs um, and with customs administrations around the world. Why is it important for a freight forwarder to have a dedicated expert for government relationships. There's so much change in the regulatory and the government policy environment. And Mm -hmm. for companies like Expeditors and our customers, being aware of what those changes are likely to be, being able to prepare for them in advance and, and as important to be able to provide input into what those changes, how they're structured and how mm-hmm. they're they're rolled out is really important to uh, our, our business. And so um, we want a seat at the table. We believe that we have a voice and we have a position that ought to be heard. The government should be aware of the impact of what they're proposing on U.S. and and multinational businesses. So that's my job. And uh, I've got a lot of willing partners here at at Expeditors. (laughs) And we're working through, you know, what what are the issues that we want to talk about and and who who do we need to sit at the table with? Right. Absolutely. Uh, Given uh, how many years you spent with CBP, what's it like to be on the other side? Oh, first of all, Expeditors people have been phenomenal. (laughs) <laughs> but I will tell you, my my learning curve and mm. getting really comfortable with um, a different set of priorities. Um, I was with one organization for 30 years and right. just knowing the new people um, was a bit of a challenge to start with. But I'll tell you, one of the things that's been great is even with the pandemic and the fact that we're not in the office a whole lot, my mm-hmm. my formal office is in the Baltimore Washington International branch. And mm-hmm. I love talking to the people there. I love seeing what they do every day. And it really grounds what we're talking about to the government in the day-to-day operations of the branch. 
Yeah, the fantastic, fantastic. Um, and so for today, we're talking about a pretty big topic, and that's forced labor. Uh, so I want to go ahead and get into it. I wanted to know first and foremost what is going on right now that's got us talking about forced labor. Why is this a topic now? People are laser focused on their supply chains and the aspect of forced labor because in December of 2021, Congress passed a new law, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which Mm -hmm. I I generally refer to as the Uyghur Act, Mm -hmm. which essentially said that any goods that were made with forced labor or came from the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, which is Mm -hmm. a portion of Northwest China, um, were assumed to have been made with forced labor and thereby needed to be excluded from the United States. In other words, any product or product made with something from that part of the world were not going to be allowed into the U.S. The challenge with that is really hard to get visibility into the goods that come out of Xinjiang. At a first level of supplier, you know who those suppliers are if you're the U.S. importer because you're often ordering directly from them. But the law requires you to know your supply chain all the way back down to that basic raw material or Mm -hmm. something mined, pulled out of the ground or grown on a farm. And very often, um, U.S. importers aren't able to get the visibility back through four or five tiers in their supply chain. It kind of gets muddied after that. You can, it's it's it harder to get the details there, right? It does. And a lot of times, um, one of the focus areas has been cotton. And cotton grown in Xinjiang, there's a lot of it. But there's a lot of cotton mm-hmm. grown in other parts of the world. But sure. when you make thread or you make fabric, a lot of times that cotton is all thrown into one big vat and mixed up together. And mm-hmm. if it's mixed with cotton grown in Xinjiang, those those T-shirts or pair of blue jeans are not able to come into the U.S. The term forced labor, uh, is there a single definition that's recognized globally or does the U.S. have a different understanding or different interpretation of that? The U.S. has really goes back to the International Labor Organization or the ILO, which has mm-hmm. some um, longstanding indicators around forced labor. And in fact, when CBP does its assessment of shipments. It looks at whether the shipments were produced by individuals who may have been in egregious working conditions or had mm-hmm. to work, you know, huge amounts of overtime and not were not paid for it or whose passports were held so that they right. could not freely travel or who were in debt bondage. In other words, Mm -hmm. they owed their employer um, so much money that they could never leave their job. And because of that, that use of the international standards, we found that our understanding of what forced labor looks like is very consistent with um, the standards used by other countries in the, Mm -hmm. in Europe or Australia or the UK. Uh, so then what has the trade community done uh, to fight forced labor, much like the implementation of the Uyghur Act? Many companies have, have invested heavily in building mm-hmm. an infrastructure around ensuring good practices in this area, um, a code of ethics, um, third-party validations of manufacturing facilities, um, working with vetted suppliers, um, putting provisions into their contracts about the expectations and requirements for compliance. Um, 
with the advent of the Uyghur Act, companies really have had to even take that even further because mm-hmm. um, the expectation from the government is that they will know their supply chains and have and be able to demonstrate a a due diligence level that is higher than what it previously was. And right, so right. companies have invested in technology to test the origin of cotton and other mm-hmm. raw materials. They have invested in data analysis and data mapping so that all of their supply chain is represented you know, in a picture and the mm-hmm. amount of data collected about those suppliers and those different tiers in their supply chain is available to them. Um, they've asked hard questions. With the Uyghur Act, one of the challenges for many companies is the fact that they can't get into China to ask those questions or to support on the ground validations. And so right. they've got to do it all through documents really at arm's length. So it's a bit of mm-hmm. a challenge. And then so in, so that's what the trade community is doing in order to fight forced labor. What's What are countries and governments doing? For a number of years, actually here in the U.S., since the early 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, we've had an exclusion on imports of goods that were made with forced labor. In more recent times, you've seen um, countries like the UK or Australia with the Modern Slavery Act, which Mm -hmm. instead of stopping goods at the border, actually puts the onus on businesses and corporations to develop that structure that we just talked about, the code of ethics and the validations and the the supplier relationships. Um, Here in the US, during the run-up to the implementation of the Uyghur Act, The government has done a lot of training and outreach to the trade community to make sure that they understand their compliance responsibilities. Um, They've been pretty clear that what their authorities allow them to do, which is to detain goods and then ask for evidence that the goods were not produced with forced labor. Um, But I will tell you, the trade community overall is still looking for good guidance and good direction on exactly what the requirements are to comply with the new act. So then who would you say is driving all of this and in, in, in being a real force for change and understanding and, and more attention towards stopping forced labor? You know, I think on the surface, it's a coalition of hmm. um, U.S. government policy officials, um, the U.S. Congress that has taken a real interest in this area, um, and non-governmental organizations. But I think at the root of it all is the consumer that is mm-hmm. demanding more visibility and and a higher standard around labor practices. Would you say that the U.S. is leading this movement to fight forced labor? Are there other countries uh, doing their part and, and leading the charge? The U.S. model for um, fighting forced labor with mm-hmm. stopping goods at the border is unique at this point. No other country... Um, up until the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement was put into place, took this approach. What we see now, though, is a lot of interest from other countries, particularly in in Europe. And mm-hmm. it is likely that we will see similar uh, legislation come out of Europe in the next few years. So the stopping of goods at the border, that's a uniquely U.S. thing? It is. And it was really very um, 
creative, I think, back in the 1930s (laughs) when um, the issue, frankly, at that point was a little less about human rights and more about um, U.S. competitiveness. So think about it. Um, U.S. businesses trying to produce a product and trying to sell it. Um, at a reasonable price, but they're in competition with goods that were made um, elsewhere by by people that didn't have to be paid or were paid uh, much less than what they might be paid here in the United States. They couldn't compete. And so Congress passed a law to support U.S. competition at that mm-hmm. point. And while well, over time, that competitiveness approach has been joined by the human rights aspect of it. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of times what gets the the ink these days. It is still a competitiveness issue. Where does an importer get this kind of proof? And how do they know that they're showing the right stuff when asked uh, to provide proof? Great questions. So companies have, for the last couple of years, really been um, investing heavily in this area, particularly in sectors the government has already indicated are at high risk of forced labor, like um, cotton and apparel goods, um, mm-hmm. tomato products, and polysilicon products. And so they have done and are really leading the way, I think, in their due diligence efforts. They, even they have indicated that they're having to find new tools, whether it is the, the technology um, to test origin, um, whether it's sophisticated data mapping, whether it's you know satellite photography. Um, but at the end of the day, what importers really need to be able to do is to explain to Customs and Border Protection how their supply chains work. They need... Mm-hmm a story that lays it out clearly. They don't need to, to dump you know, 15 boxes of documents on them. They need to be able to show that they've got a system in place that stops goods and stops forced labor. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what happens? Could you like yeah. what, what happens when like while that's being done? Because that has to be held, right? Right. So, so typically, what happens is um, as CBP is reviewing the advanced electronic information about the shipments coming to the U.S., they mm-hmm. are they're going to target sh- uh, specific shipments that they believe are are likely to have used forced labor or to come from Xinjiang under the new law, and mm-hmm. they will. Um, stop the shipment, they will detain it, and mm-hmm. then um, send a note to the the U.S. importer and the broker and say, we've got 30 days, or you have 30 days, to come and show us evidence that, in fact, this particular shipment is clean of forced labor. And 30 days sounds like a really long time. I was just about to say it does not. (laughs) It is not not a long time. I mean, think about what goes into that. If you don't have the documents at hand, you've got to get them. And even in the days of email, documents still don't flow that quickly. A lot of times (laughs) you've got to get them translated. A lot of times you're in a couple of rounds of of document exchange because you don't know exactly what CBP is going to be looking for. And Mm -hmm. I think it's going to take us a little bit of practice. So the first couple of months after the June 21st implementation date, I think are going to be a bit of a shakedown cruise. And we will... The trade community will begin to understand what CBP is really looking for, and CBP mm-hmm. will will be uh, 
a lot better about articulating what the key documents are. We might mm-hmm. never get that checklist, but I think we'll get a better understanding of, of what is needed to convince CPP. When you're saying the shakedown period, there's there's no transition no. phase, like phasing in of anything. Like it's no. just it's on. And that's unusual, right? Usually when we have these big policy initiatives or big data initiatives, um, mm-hmm. there's a, a period called informed compliance. And what it really sure. means is um, the government is is continuing to educate and the trade community is getting used to those expectations. There is right. no informed compliance period. Um, Congress wow. didn't build it into the law and specifically said, nope. You got six months, which they felt was sufficient period of time. Sure. And, yeah, yeah. and then then it's go live. And we'll see. They're ready. Um, but I don't think what we're going to see are, you know, a thousand shipments detained on day one. But I sure. think they're going to ramp up and we should be prepared for that. What are the penalties then that that importers are facing here? I mean, is there a strike system? Is it a like <laughs> you learned your lesson once? Uh, don't do it again. What happens if importers have been found to be not compliant? So big red flag for CBP. Of course, um, they yeah. keep keep good records. Um, that's what all those electronic systems and the collection of the the data is is really all about. Um, mm-hmm. The the initial impact is really you don't get to bring your goods into the United States. Sure. You either choose to or are required to um, re-export those goods to somewhere else. If there's mm-hmm. any question that you don't meet clear and convincing evidence that your supply chains are clean, um, if you do it a couple of times, your shipments are likely to be stopped time and time again. So you're never going to be mm-hmm. able to bring them in. If you do it a couple of times uh, and you're clearly still not compliant, CBP can issue penalties, which sure. was going to hit them, hit importers in the pocketbook. The other thing that we have just recently heard from CBP is that if you are suspected of evasion, in other words, oh. you're bringing goods in that were manufactured in Xinjiang or or clearly had a connection to Xinjiang, and you relabel them with a mm-hmm. country of origin somewhere else. And CBP finds out those goods can be seized. So you're mm-hmm. not allowed to re-export them and, and you lose the goods and you pay the price for for those goods. Yeah. They just take it right out of circulation. That's exactly they can't right. get moved anywhere else. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Jeez. I heard mention of an entity list. This is like the naughty list, right? <laughs> of, of the Uyghur Act. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, the legislation itself set up uh, an interagency uh, community around mm-hmm. the implementation of this new law. And I, I think actually it's a great thing because it, it pulls the authorities and the resources of many government agencies that are involved in fighting human trafficking and forced labor into the same room. And it really puts them on notice to collaborate and to work together to bring Mm -hmm. really the best efforts of the U.S. government to bear on this issue. Mm -hmm. One of the requirements of this interagency group is the production of an entity list. And those that are involved in the export world are very familiar with entity list and sanctions list. And Mm -hmm. and this is kind of a similar approach. And it's trying to communicate the knowledge of the, the federal government to the private sector around who are the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And 
who needs to be identified as a risky entity to do business with. These primarily will be suppliers. So manufacturers, farms, labor units, because that's the other aspect of this Uyghur Act. It is about the goods, but it's also about the labor used to produce those goods. And Mm -hmm. so if if that labor was operating in a forced labor environment, even if it's in another part of China or another part of the world, those goods are still subject to these restrictions. Gotcha, gotcha. So the CBP is trying to communicate these, like, do not work with these folks when you're trying to produce your goods. That's right. That's right. Okay, okay. Yeah. But yeah. I'll tell, That's a far more productive approach. <laughs> it is, but I'll tell you, Chris, the other thing to be careful of is that often companies that are on a list like this will morph. Mm-hmm. And so they'll take on a new name or a new physical location. The other right. thing that CBP and, and the interagency group has indicated is that the um, entity list is not the be all and end all of the, the mm-hmm. companies that they're worried about. And so they can take enforcement action on, on organizations that are not on the entity list. And that just goes to show how important your own due diligence is. The organizations on the entity list have been verified by the CBP, but you still got to do your own homework uh, with whomever you're working with, right? And so it sounds like collecting data is absolutely critical when showing uh, due diligence and, and the results that forced labor was not used to make your goods. So what role has technology played in this? What is it doing right now? How is it helping importers uh, through this whole process? From a couple aspects, I think we've mm-hmm. already talked about the origin testing and the DNA right, testing right. Um, technology, which is, I think, getting a, a much broader use because now there's a, a good use case for it. Um, mm-hmm. I think the other thing, the other type of technology that's been really useful is data analytics. Um, in this instance, with the restrictions on the access to facilities and production in Xinjiang itself, um, mm-hmm. People are relying on the data. And so using analytics to map where the risk is based on a variety of factors, um, known relationships to certain umbrella organizations, um, uh, production of certain products, um, physical location close to um, labor facility is all things that can be fed into an analytics machine or formula mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and dashboarded out. And I think that there are a lot of companies that are, are providing that information to U.S. importers um, to help them sort of sort through, well, where's my greatest risk and what do I mm-hmm. need to focus on? So then as a global director of government outreach, are you working with customers at all? I am. And, and some okay. of it is because of my new role and the, mm-hmm. um, but some of it's also because when I was at Customs and Border Protection, um, I was very involved in the building of the forced labor program and a lot of mm-hmm. the, the um, interpretation of the legal provisions and how we operationally executed. But we also did a lot of outreach when I was at yeah, CBP. Yeah. So just trying to continue that so that that customers really understand what the responsibilities are um, and Mm -hmm. to help them, again, focus on where their risk is. So then what would you say are some uh, surprises that you've identified in your conversations with customers regarding this topic? I'm a big believer that the private sector and the government needs to be talking to each other. 
Sure. When, when we don't talk to each other, there's so much opportunity for either misunderstanding or lack of understanding. And mm-hmm. I am amazed at um, the hesitation that I sense from um, a lot of customers that are either unwilling or just have never thought about the opportunity to sit down with the government and have a conversation, both mm-hmm. to raise an issue that is of concern, something's not working the way it's supposed to, or the the customer doesn't understand why the government is taking a particular path. But I think the other thing that is almost more valuable is by helping the government understand private sector reality. I'll use myself as an example. Sure, I worked please. for the government my whole career. Mm-hmm. My most impactful days were those that I spent in a factory or watching a line of trucks try to get across the border or um, in a, um, a terminal, shipping terminal, where they were trying to move, you know, just stacks of containers because that gave me real understanding in to how trade really moved, what some mm-hmm. of the challenges were and what some of the opportunities were. If the government doesn't understand the working environment, they're not going to see the challenges and the opportunities, and they're not going to see why what they're asking for is so difficult or expensive. At the end of the day, the people at CBP that do trade, they want U.S. businesses to succeed. But if they don't understand what it takes to succeed Mm -hmm. and add regulatory requirements or data that is just not available or that is really expensive to provide, it it doesn't work for anybody. And so I think it's really important for customers to to have those conversations. So an importer reaching out to the government to have these conversations isn't necessarily painting a target on their back. They're providing also good feedback to CBP so that they can probably define and and really nail down the details that they are looking for uh, in order to combat forced labor. So I don't want to totally oversell because (laughs) there there can be a little bit of risk there. Um, I I live in my happy land and um, (laughs) always think that the government is going to welcome this input with open arms. Mm. But I I think it's worth trying, particularly Mm. if you have a relationship already, or you're interested in forming a relationship. A lot of Mm -hmm. times you have questions that with a simple phone call or an email to a a trusted partner within the government, you can get the answer to that question. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really worth the investment of trying to form that relationship. My, My Gen Z doesn't always want to give me full visibility into what he's up to. But a lot of times I can provide useful information or support on things that he's dealing with. It's kind of the same thing with uh, Mm the business community and the government. Um, You may not always want to give them full visibility, but develop that relationship so that um, you can partner on resolving these really complex issues we've got to deal with. So it sounds ultimately like it's okay and beneficial for both the government and for importers to have a relationship with each other and also a really good reminder to just call your parents. Uh, sounds like. <laughs> That's great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. So when it comes to an importer looking at themselves, what would you say are the kind of uh, conversations that they need to be having uh, or even with their logistics partners? What we've seen is that addressing this sort of an issue is really uh, an organization wide effort because you've got legal issues, you've got procurement issues, you've got Uh, logistics issues, you've got security issues, you've got customs issues. Um, And so you really need to draw on all those sources of expertise and sources of information to understand what is required and make sure that you're addressing that requirement. Often you'll even want to pull in your communications team or your investor relations team, because very often they can help you Put that information that you've gathered and the the investment that you've made in meeting the standards into explaining exactly who you are as a company and what Mm -hmm. efforts you've made to address this issue. A lot of folks have a good story to tell if they've made the investments in things like supply chain mapping, understanding where their risks are. Um, Sometimes they've even had to shift sources of supply if they can't get the right information or the right compliance from their vendors. Um, So it it does take um, a really collaborative effort around this, but you know these are these are human beings we're talking about, and mm-hmm. making that investment um, it it makes a big difference in a lot of people's lives. So then, before we close today, uh, you mentioned June, but I wanted to get the definitive date. This all like the, the switch gets flipped. Where are the details? So on June twenty first, a couple things are going to happen. We're going to. Mm-hmm. I believe, see the strategy, the entity list, and the additional um, guidance from the Force Labor Enforcement Task Force, that interagency group. We're going to have the technical and operational guidance from CBP in hand so we know how they're going to deal with these shipments. And we're probably going to see um, at various ports around the country, CBP start to detain shipments and issue those detention notices. So be ready, have your story together, make sure it's clear, make sure it's focused. And I wish all of us the ability to make a real difference. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for your time and for, uh, for talking about this with me. I really appreciate it. Chris, it was a, an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've got questions or want to learn more about today's topic, check out the show notes for more information. And before you go, make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast app you're using so you won't miss the next episode. To learn more about Expediters, you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or simply visit us at expediters.com. Take care, and I'll see you next time.